0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, and that in connection with Canons of Dort, chapter one, articles one, two, and three. Romans three, beginning at verse one and ending at verse 20. And there the Apostle Paul, under the guidance and inspiration of the Spirit, writes, What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all that God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. I preached to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses this and summarizes it in the first three articles of the canons of Dort. Article one, it says, all mankind condemnable before God, since all men have sinned in Adam, lie under the curse and deserve eternal death. God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the whole human race in sin and under the curse, and to condemn it on account of its sin. According to these words of the apostle, that the whole world may be held accountable to God, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death the sending of the son of god but in this the love of god was made manifest that he sent his only begotten son into the world that so whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life article 3 the preaching of the gospel So that men may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends heralds of this most joyful message to whom he will and when he wills. By their ministry, men are called to repentance and to faith in Christ crucified. For how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, the last time that I preached to you it had to do with the last Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism. And ordinarily that would mean that today we should go back to the beginning, namely to Lord's Day 1, and thus start all over again with a new series of sermons on the Heidelberg Catechism. Only this time we're not going to do that. After discussing the matter with the elders of the church and receiving their wholehearted support, we are instead going to head out this week and in the following weeks into other confessional waters. What other confessional waters? Well, we're going to turn our attention to the canons of Dort. Together with the Athanasian Creed, a good case can be made for saying that These two confessional statements, namely the Assination Creed and the Canons of Dort, are among the least known by us. Both tend to be long and rather intricate. Both are somewhat involved and difficult. Both have a different kind of structure to them. And so there are some legitimate reasons for their lack of popularity and familiarity. And yet, when you look at their contents closely, you have to admit that both are dealing with matters that are basic to the Christian faith. Take the Athanasian Creed, for example. What is more basic to a believer than the confession that our God is triune and that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is both true God and a true and righteous man? And the same thing applies, beloved, to the canons. The canons deal with faith, fundamentals, with belief, basics, with evangelical essentials. And perhaps you're curious and you would like to ask what kind of fundamentals or basics are essentials. Well, to mention only a few this time, the canons deal with the role of the triune God in our salvation. The electing work of the Father, the atoning work of the Son, the preserving work of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we say they're dealing with the very heart and the very essence of the Christian faith. And in addition, the canons also deal abundantly with man, with the human heart. And the human will with faith and works and temptation and perseverance and regeneration and so many other fundamentals. In short, beloved, if you want to know what the reformed faith is all about, the faith that you profess, you need to have at least some knowledge of the things that the canons teach. And so this afternoon, let's start on a new journey as congregation, a journey through the canons of Dort. And we begin that journey with the first head of doctrine called divine election and reprobation. As such, it's not an easy beginning, but it is a necessary beginning. I preached to you on the following theme, the gospel in a nutshell. And we're going to look at its starting point, its turning point, its saving point. Well, beloved, many of the men in our midst are either builders or are connected to the building trade in one way or another, and to some extent that makes my job this afternoon somewhat easier. And if you ask in what way, well, it means that quite a few of you know something about Foundations. You know that whenever you build something substantial, be it a house or an office building or an apartment complex or whatever else it may be, it's important, vitally important, that you get the foundation right. If you build your high rise on a swamp or if you pour the footings with substandard concrete, or you fail to properly level the ground, you know instinctively that you're courting disaster. Well, beloved, to some extent the same applies to theology. We need to get our foundations right. We need solid, biblical starting points. Yes, and it is for this reason that the canons in introducing the matter of divine election start where they do. And you'll notice where they start. They start with fallen man. They start in time. And of course, they they could have started with God and and what happened before time began. They could have started, in other words, with, with mystery. But they do not. Instead, they begin with history, human history. But alas, it's a sad, historical beginning. It's a start recorded for us in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's a start commented on extensively by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Rome. And many of you know what happened. God created man good, the pinnacle of his creation. God made him in his image, in his likeness. God made them male and female for loving, fellowship, sharing, exploring and serving. God gave man a beautiful life and a beautiful wife and a beautiful place and the promise of an even more beautiful future. You can rightly say that in the beginning already, man had it all. But man rejected it all. Consciously, willfully, or as the catechism speaks about, deliberate disobedience, man spoiled it all. And again, the catechism is rather illuminating when it says that man Robbed himself. Or is they for answer nine? Man impoverished himself. Man, so to speak, shot himself in the foot. He engineered his own downfall. He became the architect of his own demise. But that's not all. But there's more, there's much more. For not only did man drag himself down, he also dragged all of humanity down with him. The Bible makes no bones about the fact that that Adam's sin was not an isolated, solitary, private, lonely kind of sin. No, the sin of Adam and Eve had consequences. Consequences in terms of their relationship to God, their relationship to one another as husband and wife, their relationship to their work, their relationship to their world, and it had consequences for their posterity, for their offspring, their seed, their family. And for all of mankind... And what kind of consequences? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul and what he says in the letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, where he speaks about mankind who suppress the truth by their wickedness since they may be known about God as plain to them. And there as well the Apostle in the beginning of that verse says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against All the godlessness and wickedness of men. Consequence number one. The wrath of God. And then you turn to Romans one. The last part of verse 20 and all of 21, so that man are without excuse, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says, consequence number two, futile thinking, darkened minds. And then in Romans 1, verse 29, he says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife. And the list goes on. And there the Apostle Paul says, Consequence number three, polluted lives. And in our scripture reading of Romans 3, you hear it again, verse 9. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And there he says, that's consequence number four. All are under sin. And in Romans 3.12 he said, All have turned away. If together become worthless, there is no one who does good, not even one. Consequence number five, there are no exceptions. So when you add it all up, what do we have? Paul says we have humanity gone awry. We have a world out of kilter. We have a huge godless mess on our hands. So what do you do when you have a mess? What happens when you as a builder erect a building with a substandard foundation? Well, you can declare bankruptcy and wash your hands of the mess. Or you can tear it down and try to avoid future liability. Or otherwise you know that City Hall might come along and demand that you tear it down? You see, either you walk away from it, or you start over. But now, beloved, that is precisely the position that God was in at the very beginning. Faced with a humanity that had sinned in Adam, lay under the curse, was deserving of eternal death. It says in article one that God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the whole human race in sin and under the curse. So, beloved, where do the canons begin their treatment of God's election? They start with man's fallen condition. They start with humanity under wrath. They start with God having a right, every right, to wash His holy hands of all of us. And, beloved, you and I need to remember, also in the subsequent weeks, we need to remember this starting point. And we need to remember it because it's so often overlooked, forgotten, or ignored. You know, we people, we love to speak about our rights And indeed, human rights always seem to be a topic in the daily news. In Canada, we even have a charter of human rights and freedoms, freedom of religion, association, speech. And we have all of those rights to vote and life, liberty, security, mobility, equality, and you name it. And we're zealous to protect those rights and to stand on them. And you know, that's fine in a way. For human society to function well, there needs to be a a recognition of and an adherence to basic human rights. The problem is, however, that we so easily carry over our preoccupation with human rights over to God. And we think that just like we have a right to demand and expect a certain recognition of our fellow man, so we have a right to demand certain things from God. As if these things are our due, our possession, our property. And we conveniently forget that we have ruined it all with God. And we talk as if He owes us salvation, forgiveness, prosperity, freedom, eternal life. Why, beloved, ask an unbeliever, ask an agnostic as to why God should bless them and allow them into His heaven. And chances are they'll look at you with a strange face and say with a good degree of indignation, why, it's my right. Of course God has to do this for me. But the canons according to the scriptures say wrong. Our God doesn't have to do anything for anyone. Our God is free. By nature we are bound to sin and death, but our God remains free and sovereign. He has choice. But how is he going to exercise that choice? I know how I would exercise it. As a long-toed, quick-tempered, short-sighted human being, I would probably say, let's just start over. How do you fix a crooked building? How much money and effort and time do you spend on, on something that is so very seriously defective? It's better to face the music, step up to the plate, pull up your wallet... And start all over again from scratch. Or walk away. So beloved, from a human perspective, we would expect God either to wave goodbye to our planet. Or otherwise, we would expect God to wipe the slate clean on this planet and start all over again. Either way, He has options. He has options that he can exercise. And he even has a right to do so. Now, what does he do? Does our God look at this rebellious world and creation and does he walk away? Or does he demolish? Neither. Neither. Instead, He does the utterly unexpected. Our God decides to rescue and to renovate. Article 2 tells us a great sea surprise. But in this the love of God was made manifest that he, He sent His only begotten Son into the world so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And resonating through that article are the words of John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And as well, there's the language of one John four verse nine this is how God showed his love toward us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Obviously, beloved, then our God did not decide to follow the route of justice alone. And neither did he opt for the avenue of just desserts or the boulevard of sweet revenge. He was not consumed by a spirit of getting even. No, he chose another way, the way of love. And now, beloved, we mustn't clutter up and confuse the way of love. You know, we often tend to do that. How many Christians don't begin their evangelistic sales pitch to an unbeliever by using the saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I would say to you this afternoon that such a sales pitch only confuses the issue. It minimizes the damage that sin has done and it and it gives to unbelievers a false sense of security and complacency. Oh, the Christian God loves me anyway. So why do I need to repent and, and why do I need to believe in this Jesus Christ at all? And in addition, beloved, such a sales pitch fails to make proper distinctions when it comes to the love of God. In Scripture, there are at least five of those distinctions that we should take note of. And here in John 3, as well as in 1 John 4, the Bible is speaking about God's love in a general saving way. It's saying that God has compassion on His creation. He doesn't want to destroy it. He doesn't want to bypass it. Now he wants to rescue it and renew it. And by the way, if you want a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches about the love of God, then I would recommend that you read the books by Donald Carson. There's one called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. The other is called Love in Hard Places. They're very helpful when it comes to this matter. But to go back to the matter at hand, beloved, our God wants to go on with this world. He's willing to lavish his love, his patience, his care, his goodness, and his mercy on it still. And How do we know that? How can we be so sure of this, this great turning point? What demonstrates his commitment to this fallen creation and to this ruined humanity more than anything else? It's his decision to send his son. Our God decides to send the person who is dearest and closest and most loved by him on a great rescue mission. Our God decides to make a whole new start through Him. Our God decrees that all who believe in Him shall not experience what their sins deserve, namely eternal deaths. But instead they'll experience the opposite. Eternal life. And beloved, isn't that great and glorious news? Isn't that the kind of, of news that makes this life of ours livable again and that fills us with new hope? This rebellious world in which we live and, and this life that we experience every day and in all of its brokenness is the object of a great rescue mission by the only begotten Son of God. Scripture says repeatedly there's a way back and there's a way up to God through His Son. And that's wonderful news. It's the kind of news that we need to remind ourselves about every day. It's the kind that should color and revitalize our lives. It's the kind that we should tell our children, don't just go by what you read in the headlines of the newspapers. Don't just go by all the misery that you read and hear about and that you see. True, the darkness is in us and the darkness is all around us, but through faith in Jesus Christ, the light breaks through it breaks through into our lives and it breaks through into our world truly by looking to christ and by believing in him there's a way back to god and a way forward to a new and better Garden of Eden. In other words, beloved, there is no such thing as a hopeless Christian. In Christ, through Christ, and because of Christ, we can always have hope. Yes, and now the canons say it's this, this news, this revolutionary news that needs to get out. The world needs to hear what God is doing through His Son. And it needs to hear it loud and clear. But how shall it hear? Well, that's where Article 2 of, or 3 of the canons comes into the picture. It says there that in order to bring men to faith, God has decided to send heralds of this most joyful message to whom he will and when he wills. What's a herald? Well, actually, a herald is little more than a mouthpiece. It's a word that describes an ancient office in which a king would issue a decree from his throne and then he would expect his heralds, his messengers to bring it to all the the corners of his realm and domain. And of course such a task requires a willingness to go out, but it also requires something more. It requires a commitment to, to pass along faithfully and accurately the decree of the king. Well, beloved, to such a task, God is ordaining preachers. One of them called Timothy is told, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. And he's also told, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. And elsewhere, Paul writes to the Romans and he asks them a a whole bunch of rhetorical questions. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? In short, Paul says there need to be those who bring out the good news. And thankfully there have been. There have been men like Paul and Peter, Timothy, and Silas and Barnabas and Athanasius and Augustine and Wycliffe and Huss and Lucer and Calvin and Witchfield and Carey. And so many others. They proclaimed the saving work of Jesus Christ. To the world. But you know, we need more. We need more because many who claim to be heralds are not acting as true heralds. Their preaching is not about God's agenda, it's about their own agenda. I'm not sure how many of you subscribe to Christian Renewal, but in some of the last issues there were articles on some noted people in Christendom. And some of them preach a very perverted kind of gospel. Name it, claim it, prosperity, You know, the reason you should serve this God is because this God is going to make you rich or this God is going to make you powerful or maybe this God is going to make you handsome or beautiful. All kinds of outrageous claims. Not only outrageous claims, but all kinds of assertions undermining biblical truth and faithfulness. Beloved, what the world needs is men, but then men who are faithful heralds, faithful messengers of the joyful message of the gospel. They shouldn't be preaching themselves. They shouldn't be preaching about all kinds of secondary or insignificant trivial issues. They should be preaching the heart of the faith. Through Jesus Christ and through faith in him there is salvation. Salvation for a humanity lost in sin and under the curse. I dare say there is no greater need, and there is no higher calling in life, than that. Heralds of the good news. You know, after almost 30 years in the ministry, or I should say more than 30 years in the ministry, sometimes people ask me interesting questions. and One of the questions that I've been asked these days uh, is a question of, Am I not sometimes tired and fed up with preaching? Well, beloved, I may say to you this afternoon, sometimes I may get fed up with people, but I never, ever, thanks to the grace of God, have gotten fed up with preaching. Because what we preach is, as Paul says, not ourselves. It's the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel of Jesus Christ, that's always a thrill, And it's always a challenge. And it's always a joy. Sometimes I also remark, it's not the preaching and the teaching of the ministry that get people down. It's all the other stuff. And that's true. Because the gospel lifts up. And the gospel energizes. And that's why I also say to you young men here who have talents and abilities in this respect, don't ignore those talents and abilities. Don't merely seek for security or the status quo. Or a life of ease and relaxation or prosperity. There's nothing quite like being able to proclaim God's great rescue operation to the world. Because this is the message that spreads salvation and hope. Amen.